From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A big howdy to all of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. And hey, you, streaming us on our YouTube channel, Strange Planet. However, and wherever you're listening... I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Gary Wayne is the author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, and he is with us. Just a quick programming note. Next week, Dr. Elena Gabor, past life regression therapist and author of Home at the Tree of Life. Uh, we are talking about the Nephilim, the offspring, hybrids of fallen angels and human mothers, the giants from the Bible, the men of renown of ancient times, and how the bloodline of this Nephilim are still among us and they will rise again in the end times to enslave humanity uh, according to my guest Gary Wayne. So just give us uh, as we proceed into hour two the big picture as to why uh, why Lucifer uh, ordered the fallen angels to to corrupt human blood if you will. What was the end game here? Yeah, it's an extension of, and it's a very good question, but it, I believe it's an extension of the angelic rebellion, uh, which then leads to God creating the Adamites, uh, as it's talked about in, in Genesis 2 with Adam and Eve. And so, I don't believe that the angels actually thought that they could defeat God. I think that they were looking to gain their own realm because they were created immortal without the choice uh, of immortality but only a choice to choose God and follow him or to rebel and many of them rebelled but they knew how powerful God was they worked with him closely they knew how good he was they knew how powerful he was and so even though the leader Satan would be uh, very, very powerful as he's described in, in Isaiah and in Ezekiel and other places in, in the book. I don't think they thought they could win, but as Isaiah 14 talks about where you have, where Lucifer shows up and that word goes back to hell, El, which I think is Satan's uh, original name uh, in Hebrew, um, that I think he was, as it says in Isaiah, was trying to be like God and to have his own realm to be like God, so he could raise up his throne uh, in that new realm to be like God. So I think they're trying to win um, a separation or a negotiated sort of peace where they could live on their own. And that was never going to happen. Uh, and God knew this was going to happen all along, being Alpha Omega, but now he's going to create the Adamites, who are not going to be created immortal, uh, and are going to have very little knowledge of God, and are going to have to choose God more on faith, and in doing so will gain their immortality, uh, and will be raised above angels in the future time, and to even judge angels, because they're going to be raised uh, up to be brothers of Jesus as adopted sons of God in the future time, after the resurrection, uh, our resurrection, um, and that this will be, because as a brother of Jesus, Jesus is higher than the angels is where I'm going with that concept. So what Satan and the angels are now doing is, is they're saying, we're going to try and prevent this from happening. 
if our just if our rebellion is going to be justified, we have to bring down humankind. And so you start this series of consequences that roll forward, beginning in the Eden account, where I think Satan avatars the Nakash, and we know it's not Satan who gets the punishment, it's the Nakash, the serpent, as uh, the serpent goes back to Hebrew in that application, you know, loses the arms and its intelligence and its speech, uh, all for... Uh, participating with Satan in this avatar type of effect where Satan would enter him just as he did Judas to help Judas complete the betrayal of Jesus. Um, in this case, to bring down Eve and then Adam. And so this is the first revenge. Um, and you have this series of revenge going uh, all the way through the, the Bible. And right after Eden, you get Genesis 3.15 where you learn that the seed of the serpent is going to be at odds with the seed of of Eve, and I think that is a prophecy of what's going to happen in Genesis 6 with the seraphim, fiery serpent, angels who are going to create the Nephilim who look just like them, which is why the kings of the ancient world all look like snakes, and you have all of that cobra and serpent imagery that goes along with royalty, along with the dragon imagery of the serpent, because the seraphim had feathered wings uh, and a serpent's face, and in ancient understanding was a dragon was a flying serpent, in this case a heavenly dragon serpent, uh, and just like you would have, let's say, Quetzalcoatl as being a plume serpent or a feathered serpent with the Kishamaya or the Nagas in India. So you have these serpent-type beings that are now going to be coexisting as hybrids with human beings, and they bring down the antediluvian world. And then you have these giants again showing up after the floods. We have this complete series of, of uh, revenges and attempts to bring humankind down, including destroying Israel, which is why they waited in ambush in the land of the covenant so that they couldn't bear the Messiah because uh, with the advent of Jesus being born, you have his resurrection and that officially ends the uh, angelic rebellion, just as First Peter uh, 3.19, this, we have Jesus talking to these impassioned rebellious angels while he's still in the grave, basically, I think, telling them that when he rises on the Sunday, his, the rebellion is officially over and they're going to be sentenced to the lake of fire. And I don't believe the angels, because they don't know everything, and as powerful as Satan is, he is not as powerful as God. They did not realize or anticipate the resurrection. And so when you start to put that into context with prehistory and history, and then forward to the end time, things start to make a lot more sense. But they they did, it sounds, or at least Lucifer did, uh, realize that... Jesus was coming. There would be this birth of the Messiah. And so was, were they, was the game here to purposely corrupt the gene pool in order, in order to forestall the birth of Jesus? Or was it simply to kill the Israelites and destroy, let's say, the line of Judah, uh, the tribe of Judah, the line of David? And so there never would be a, a, a Jesus. I would say all of the above. Uh, because they're so desperate to, to win that. And so they de- definitely want to, wanted to corrupt the gene pool so that maybe God would move forward to wipe everybody out again. It might be one of the thoughts that they would have had. But they also wanted to prevent the Messiah from coming, which is why they wanted to wipe Israel out. And then he wants to kill uh, the Messiah 
um, as a baby, um, as Jesus is being born and, and shortly thereafter. And then you have, you know, the resurrection, which puts, puts an end to this. So all of what they're doing is, is trying to either wipe Israel from the face of the earth or prevent the Messiah from coming and or by wiping Israel from the face of the earth through the Amalekim, which is part of the Rephaim breed, and the uh, son of uh, Eliphaz and Timna, um, who are, uh, Eliphaz is the son of uh, Esau, who is the brother of Jacob, who, in, who becomes Israel and inherits all of the blessings and the birthrights. And he's the older son who doesn't get those birthrights and Messianic blessing. He is trying to wipe out through Amalek, uh, and Malachim down the road, uh, Israel as they come out of Egypt. And that's the first battle that happens out of Egypt. So they're trying to also usurp those uh, blessings that Israel is going to get so that they can add that in and graft it in, as you say, a, a, a polluted uh, DNA or bloodline into the dragon messiah that they want to present in the end time um, as, the, as, as the dragon messiah. So the... The bloodline of the Nephilim continues uh, through this time, through, let's say, the, the period of, of the New Testament, but there aren't physical giants running around, correct? So how? why is that? Why, where were the giants? Well, when we look at what happens with the, uh, the royal dynasties and their sort of cousins and wider family, which becomes the nobility and the elite, is that if you continue to intermarry in a small gene pool, which they did, and you know that's why you have all of these queens coming from princess princesses coming from other dynasties and intermarrying and staying, um, whether it's from the Mesopotamian to the Egyptian or to the Malachim or to the Hittites or even down what they do throughout modern history, where you have intermarriage between the royal families, they need to bring in diluted levels of bloodlines to regenerate uh, the bloodline to prevent diseases like um, hemophilia. Uh, um, I'm trying to think Hem- of oh, the... Hem- uh, hemophilia. Hemophiliac disease, thank you. And um, let's say Habsburg jaw is another example. So there's a lot of, through interbreeding, a lot of diseases that they have to make sure that they don't interbreed too tightly. And the more you dilute the bloodline, over time, the less you have of that original size and look of what uh, the Giants originally had. So over time, I think they've lost that. A lot of people disagree with me on that and say, well, no, they have a changeling ability, but we don't really have any proof of that. But what we do know is, is there's this continual dilution of that pure bloodline. And they keep their pedigrees of these genealogies right back into prehistory because the purer the bloodline, the higher the pedigree within that sort of organizational cult. And so that's why I don't that's why I think they've lost uh, their their size and that serpentine look for the most part over time. But if you look at somebody like Akhenaten who was a considered uh, one of the most ennobled bloodlines of that period of time, uh, 1200 to 1400 BC depending on uh, whose chronology you're going to use. If you go to a King Tut museum and look at a statue of Akhenaten, you see the serpentine look. Uh, and he's got this protruded chin, these high cheekbones, these almost alien-like wraparound eyes, this elongated skull, um, and it, it looks like a serpent. 
And so I think even at that point, which would have been over a thousand years after the flood, you still see some of those traits. But over time, I think they've just sort of, they've taken on more of that human type look. So what we have is the descendants of the giants, which my book follows those bloodlines in terms of what they're doing, how they create the secret societies, and how they want to bring about this rendezvous, get their co-conspirators and creators uh, out of the abyss and to have this war against the God of the universe. So in Jesus' time, uh, for example, the Caesars, uh, King Herod, uh, were they descended from the Nephilim? Yeah, I think so. And so Herod, he takes his bloodlines back through the Edomites, uh, and back to Esau. Esau and the Edomites are the same. And he has significant Amalekim and um, Horim bloodlines that he comes out of through the Edomite kings. And again, I've got documents on all this stuff. If people want to get a hold of me, uh, I can walk, you know, you can get those documents. It'll walk you through step by step. Just get a hold of me through the website. And, uh, the, in the, uh, Roman tradition, you have the Caesars taking over after the senators, but the senators is this, are this noble class until you get the tyrants or the Caesars that come along. But the Caesars come out of that senator class and those bloodlines they all take their bloodlines back to the roman and the etruscan gods and the uh offspring that they had which were again heroes and so it's the same thing that's going on even in jesus's time and these are the same ruling class and they're going to continue to intermarry and what about the merovingian uh, bloodline that would become the frankish kings and later the kings and queens of france yeah, it's, again, as you go through history, there's these sort of crossroad kingships, as I would like to call them, that have the most noble bloodlines of that time. The Merovingians would be one of those. And they have a number of scion, and scion is an occult word where you graft in bloodlines, just as you would use that word for grafting of, of plants. But in this case, in, in noble bloodlines of particularly of the firstborn. And their bloodlines go back to uh, a number of different areas. Um, one is a, a distinct line of consolidation of Nephilim bloodlines of Europe and of, uh, of uh, the Middle East. And also they're intermarrying and grafting or scioning in those bloodlines, bloodlines from King Saul who was the first king of Israel, and they say that comes through from two different sources, one from Mary Magdalene that I'll touch on in a second, and one from through the Sicambium Franks where you've got some Benjamites that migrate up uh, and intermarry with the Sicambium Franks. Um, and so that's important because that gives them the rights in terms of what they say to Jerusalem because... Joshua gave the Benjamites Jerusalem in the time of the Exodus. And that's why you need to follow the King of Jerusalem title if you you know want to follow some of these bloodlines and the allegories that um, they like to connect together uh, and, and display in plain sight. Uh, and I think Antichrist is going to crown himself the King of Jerusalem, just as Baldwin was the first King of Jerusalem, who was the brother of the Bullion, who's a descendant of the of Dagobert of the 
Merovingians and and uh, one of the founders of the Templars is crowned first uh, king of Jerusalem in 1118 and then it falls down through the Habsburgs and now is in with the king of Spain through the Bourbons who comes out of the Habsburg Lorraine bloodline. But I digress. Um, and then you have uh, the bloodlines of David that they've scioned in there and you also have what they believe to be is the bloodline of Jesus and Mary Magdalene because they believe that Jesus didn't die on the cross and that he was taken down. I don't believe that. This is what they believe and they've scioned that bloodline in. So they've got all of these ennobled bloodlines that have come down as one of those great sort of crossroads of history where you've got so many ennobled bloodlines. Um, and most of the bloodlines of the royal families today will trace their bloodlines back to the Merovingians. And how that bloodline gets in from Jesus and Mary Magdalene into the Merovingians comes down through the Joseph of Arimathea and the Grail uh, literature where in, in, in their belief, Joseph of Arimathea takes Josephes, which is the third son, as they like to say, of Mary and, and Jesus after the, after he's saved from the crucifixion. And they're going to marry into the Pendragon Celtic dynasties after settling in Glastonbury. And that's going to produce uh, a princess called Aragon, who's going to marry Aminabad of the Merovingian dynasty. So, and the amazing thing is they have all of these genealogies that they've kept track of. And a good classic example of, and, and, and to connect back in a little bit of what we we're talking about earlier in the show is. The Windsors of England uh, and Prince Charles, he's on record on saying uh, that he has, his genealogies go back to Vlad the Impaler. Yes. And Vlad the Impaler was this red hair, hazel-eyed character, pale skin character that the Dracula character uh, is based on. And his bloodlines go back to the Scythians as a Tuatha Danaan. So that's just a classic example of how they value these genealogies and how they track them. But for those um, monarchs who claim that they can trace their bloodline back through the Merovingians, through uh, Jesus and Mary Magdalene, I, for one, I don't believe Jesus had children. I don't believe he was married to Magdalene. I don't believe he survived the crucifixion. So that, to me, is is that a deception? Are they trying to are they trying to uh, artificially graft their bloodline to the house of David? Uh, in order to gain legitimacy? Yes. Yes. It, 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 I believe it's false and alleged. They say they have the evidence and that that's how they're going to sort of bring Christianity down uh, in the end time was one of the major pieces so that they can enfold it into the universal religion. But yes, it's what they're trying to do so that they can claim um, a pedigree that is so great that nobody will dare to deny it and that um, even though they don't look at Jesus as being the son of God in Gnosticism, they do believe he's a great prophet, that he was an incarnation in that Christ consciousness uh, belief system just as Vishnu or Shiva incarnated many times and and it, Jesus would be one of the, what they would call these enlightened prophets sent to help humankind on their path as they evolve into godhood. I don't believe in any of that, but that's what they believe and it's what they do with their belief that we need to be that we need to understand. Again, Gary, how do people get a hold of the book? 
Um, best way to get a hold of the book is uh, through Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Barnes & Noble, or you can go to my website at the Genesis6Conspiracy.com and get a signed copy or link over to any of those um, places that I just mentioned and or get a link into the Kindle version. Right. All right. Let's uh, take another time out. We'll come back and uh, continue to discuss the bloodline of the Nephilim and how they will rise again to enslave humanity. Gary Wayne, my guest for the full two hours, the author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. We're back with Gary Wayne, the author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Uh, so these uh, kings, queens around the world uh, that tie their bloodline to the, uh, the Nephilim, uh, which were the product of a commingling of the fallen angels and, and um, human human wives. Uh, I mean, is it simply limited to royalty? Because let's face it, monarchs are on their way out. Uh, more and more countries around the world, there are a few holdouts. Most are becoming republics. Um, so where else do we find the descendants or the bloodline of the Nephilim? It's a very, very good question, and uh, it's it's very, very true that the visibility of the royal families aren't there. I mean, we have, you know, the English crown, but they're just not visible and showing that visible control everywhere. And over the last hundred years, they've stepped a little bit more further back and into the background, uh, but still controlling things. And... They have a whole series of orders within the royal families, whether or not it's the, uh, you know, the Rolo bloodlines that go back to the gods of Odin, which is the Seraphim uh, order, or it's uh, any of the other uh, orders that uh, they that the royal families have uh, through throughout Europe. These are the orders that control, you know, the lower level orders of, uh, of secret societies. And the conduit is the Rosicrucians where you have the upper half of the Rosicrucians being the purebloods, uh, who report up the ladder to, um, these other orders. And it goes something like, uh, like this. So the Rosicrucians report to the, um, committee of 300, which reports to the Council of 33, which reports to the family of the 13 families. And then intersecting in those top layers, you have all of these royal blood orders. Um, and so they control the world through their organization. So they're not very visible, but those bloodlines are still there. And they're the, the, the ancient names, um, not ancient, I guess medieval names would be a better way of saying it, whether or not it's the Sinclair family, which are the St. Clairs, who actually are that bloodline of Rollo. They change their name to St. Clair after they expropriate Normandy from the French, French in about 911 AD. Uh, you've got names like uh, de Bouillon, 
de Payon and Anjou, who were uh, founding members of the Knights Templar, who were the descendants of the last Mer- Merovingian survivor, Dagobert, uh, of, of, the Ange- of the Lorraine region. Um, and the Anjou produced the Plantagenet, which most of the presidents take their genealogies back to, to through uh, King, um, King John of the Magna Carta, and that was the Plantagenet. Uh, dynasty at that point in time. You have um, families like the, the Habsburg Lorraine, which is an intermarriage of the Anjou out of uh, Lorraine into the Habsburg dynasty. Um, you've got the Stuart uh, family, which is uh, at that point in time now becomes the unicorn family, which is again the most ennobled of that time. You've got the Bourbons of Spain, who I mentioned, who have the King of Jerusalem title today, and on and on and on. These are families that are in the background who are still pulling the strings. And who stands, uh, I mean, is there a bloodline that, that stands in opposition? For example, I don't know, I'm just blue-skying it here, but Jesus had a half-brother. Uh, his father, Joseph, had a family before. So there was James, who I became, I believe became uh, the first bishop of, of Jerusalem. And was martyred. Uh, I mean, do they have? Is there a bloodline there that is preserved and and that stand in opposition to the the Nephilim? Well, what happens is that these uh, groups of people they are drafting Jesus's family and Jesus and John the Baptist in as a scenes into their bloodline and organization. Falsely, I believe the family of Jesus is called the Despasini. And uh, they, we do know that they're still active in the church. And actually, when Constantine is uh, uh, setting up Christianity as the state-sponsored uh, religion of Rome, which I think he also mix in a lot of Mithraism, but that's another rabbit hole, you have the Despasini who are actually uh, petitioning to move the center for the Christian church back to Jerusalem. They don't win that argument, but they're visible then. But because they've been drafted in by the polytheists, it's part of that scion of the bloodlines that they have have also used for their pedigree. So the, um, the kings and queens, the, I mean, do they all, without exception, have... I mean, you can't get into the club, right, unless you have Nephilim blood. But is that the idea? For the most part, they're all going to have a pedigree that is going to be acceptable, or they're going to have a pedigree where they're going to be used to ha- uh, to reintroduce or a refreshing of the bloodline. You know, we're seeing, let's say, with the Windsors in England, um, more of that bloodline that's a little bit further out but i think in any of the bloodlines you're going to have to find something that's probably connected back i wouldn't you know say that none of them would go rogue on that but as a general rule you need to have that pedigree to be in the club absolutely um and it's just you, you don't have standing within that world unless you've got a pedigree that is important to what extent uh do we all have Nephilim blood in us? I mean, is, and is there a particular blood marker? Yeah, that's a very good question. And in my book, I don't specifically talk about that uh, a whole lot in terms of the blood, but I talk all around it just because we can't prove it. But what seems to be the blood is uh, the marker is the Rh negative bloodline, and. 
typically the Royals have uh, RH negative line in, uh, blood, and so the Windsors is O negative, which is the most sought after uh, blood. Now that's only in about 15% of the population in the world, so it's not the dominant. RH positive would be more dominant. Uh, but you get a concentration of this bloodline in uh, France and, and, and in England where the percentages go up significantly. In, in parts of France, you know, it's going to be like, you know, 20 to 25 percent. The most concentrated levels of RH negative is in the Basques. And they uh, settled in southwest France where the Templars settled, where uh, King of Septimania was, uh, where the Cathars and the Epicenians were, and sort of the area of rebellion, if I can put it that way, an epicenter of, of rebellion. And the Basques believe that they are the most pure of the bloodlines. Now, they had a falling out with the bloodlines that moved out of Europe, and they have the Basque diaspora, but they believe that they are the Homo Atlantis. This is their belief, and um, I'm sure not every Basque believes this, but this, this is their mythology and their belief system. And that what they talk about when they say they're Homo Atlantis is they were the survivors after the flood who settled in uh, northwest Spain uh, and in southwest France, and uh, then also started the civilization of Egypt civilization of Mesopotamia and not without coincidence from what we've talked about earlier the Scythian civilization and that they are the most noble bloodline in the world but again they've had a falling out with with the other bloodlines that moved out of, out of Europe so that's the RH negative bloodline and people who have RH negative bloodline you know they are grouped with a lot of science and research that you know then this is sort of a uh, a mixing of of the of of many many scientific results, but they have a higher intelligence than the average human. They average 135 plus. They say they have better analytical skills, better intuitive abilities, more psychic abilities, and on and on and on. I won't go through all of the different things that they say that come along with this in terms of that mythos, uh, but those are scientific uh, results that sort of go along with that, and so. They believe in more than the blood. It's actually what they would call the gene of Isis, which is the biggest marker. So a DNA marker or a gene market marker, which they would also say is the root word for Genesis. And it's through the genes that produces the type of blood. And so that would be the true marker that I think would, uh, they would be looking for to identify who the people are around the world, that they want to know who they are and what level of, of degree of purity they have as they start to bring in this new age or what we would know as Christians as the end time. All right, let's take another time out. When we come back, we'll talk about the reemergence of the Nephilim on the world stage in the end times, as you just mentioned. Back with more of my conversation with Gary Wayne, the author of The, the Genesis 6 Conspiracy, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Gary Wayne, the author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Again, Gary, how do people get a hold of the book? 
Uh, best way to get a hold of the book is uh, through Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Barnes & Noble, or you can go to my website at the Genesis6Conspiracy.com and get a signed copy or link over to any of those um, places that I just mentioned and or get a link into the Kindle version. At some point, I think it's in the book of Matthew, Jesus is asked about the end times, and he says that in the end times it will be as it was in the days of Noah. Is Jesus referencing the Nephilim in in that passage? It's a great question, and a lot of people think it's again it's just referencing um, the violence and or people were shocked and weren't ready for the end time, and all of that was true, but. The disciples asked what were all of the signs of his coming in the, in the end time. And this is an overarching sign as well as those smaller details. And so uh, I think he is referencing that we need to understand the days of Noah, uh, who lived 950 years, 600 years before the flood, 350 years after the flood, so I think we need to understand what was going on at Sodom and Gomorrah and at Babel and uh, and with the creation of, of Israel as well as the creation of the giants before the flood and the cause of the flood. And I think he wants us to understand that it's going to look like that with the same universal religion that they imposed through the Nephilim. This is what the end time is going to look like. And in Luke's version, he actually connects... Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, which is with its destruction of fire as part of the as of Noah days of the flood, which I think is telling us that there is a second incursion and that that destruction was fire. And just as the first apocalypse was by water, the linkage is, is the uh, end times will be an apocalypse of fire, which is the description of all of the destruction for the most part that we get in the apocalypse. So I think he's directing us to learn what happened in prehistory and history so that we were not deceived for what's going to happen in the end time. And was he also specifically talking about the Nephilim taking human wives and creating this hybrid uh, offspring? In fact, some have suggested that the modern-day UFO alien abduction Phenomena is a mirroring of those days of Noah. Well, I would agree with that to a certain degree. And so we don't know whether or not uh, we're going to have actual giants roaming around and that there are angels are going to procreate and recreate the Nephilim of old. Or it's going to be the descendants, as my book focuses more on in terms of being part of that end-time alliance. Just as in Daniel 2.43, you have the descendants of the metallic dynasties of the Rephaim after the flood, who are part of this ten-nation empire, which they're going to call the New Atlantis, which is what the Club of Rome is trying to establish around the world, uh, as we speak in groups of nations and trading blocks, etc. But anyways, these descendants are going to inter mixed with the seed of men. So we know there's going to be a representative of these bloodlines that are going to intermix with um, human beings in the end time. Or there's going to be a recreation. I think we need to be open to both. And or is there another way to create Nephilim? And I think it's, you know, when you are 
doing a violation against the laws of creation, you're doing whether or not it's DNA manipulation to do that. It's the same sort of Nephilim concept. So, again, whether through alien technology or human technology, because we're able to now manipulate the DNA, it could be that we'll see the giants come in that way as well. Uh, I would also be open to the fact that if one accepts that the spirits of the Nephilim didn't die, they didn't go to sleep, and they weren't permitted into heaven, and they've been roaming just as Jesus was dealing with like legion and other thirsting um, uh, demon spirits at his time, that they're still out there, and that with the technology that is being developed right now, is that there could be clones or transhumanism or whatever else is going to come out of this uh, this technology where these demon spirits might be able to enter and lead sort of the armies of the end time. And or you're going to create all of these fantastic biological weapons uh, that are part animal because you get some crazy descriptions in Revelation 9 and Joel 1 and 2 and the Gog and, and Magog war, which I think is, is, is reflective back of there's a Nephilim um, influence to that World War III that happens with that 200 million man army and after the beings come out of the abyss in Revelation 9. We just have about 10 seconds. Just give me a yes or no and we'll follow up later. Uh, so in the end times, we will see a return of actual physical giants? Somehow, some way, yes. All right, we'll leave it there and we'll pick up on the other side, as I say. Gary Wayne, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Stay with us. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, we are into the home stretch with Gary Wayne, the author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Uh, so the uh, the reemergence of giants in the end times, are we talking about, well, what order of giants? Are we talking about the original, you know, 30, 40-foot giants? Are we talking about more like a Goliath, nine feet tall? Yeah, I think I think the smaller version, if there's going to be giants, uh, I mean, I wouldn't rule out the other possibility, but nowhere do we get a specific Nephilim term, right, of those gigantic monsters. We get sort of the understanding with the days of Noah. We get these great and mighty men references in the New Testament. Um, we get the word Gibberim being used, which is uh, Gibor, uh, and I am is the male plural, which is where the word mighty one comes from in Genesis 6-4 to describe uh, these warrior-like tyrant beings uh, that are produced from uh, human females and, and angels. That shows up in in Joel 1 and 2 and also at, in, in 3 and 4 as you get into the Armageddon War. And it shows up again as mighty ones in the Gog and Magog War in um, Ezekiel 39 in the second chapter, 38 is is also part of that Gog and Magog war. Uh, so I think you're going to get that as part of it, understanding that Gog and Magog were giants born from Poseidon and or Iapetus, and that uh, this I think is reflecting that we're going to see these giants somehow, some way. But I just don't think that they're going to be those monstrous ones because I think the Bible would give us that as a specific word so that we could identify it. 
Uh, again, I have a, a document that links this on the great mighty men that uh, Revelations talks about, so the Gibberim back in, in the Old Testament. So if people want that, get a hold of me. And are we going to see an entire army uh, descending on Israel, uh, comprised of these giants? I think they're going to be leading the army in that Gog and Magog war, Joel 1 and 2, and that 200 million man army that uh, has all of these crazy beings that are described in it marching on Israel, yes. And I think, uh, and this is the people uh, that God is going to stand uh, and defend uh, and destroy that army um, that is just going to utterly shock the world. And I think this is the war that as Antichrist is rising to power is going to take credit for as um, saving Israel uh, and which will then allow him to move into Jerusalem and become Antichrist and be crowned in the abomination in the temple. So this is uh, the false peace that he will, uh, yes, he will create. Yes, yes, through a false Armageddon. And... You know, when I'm, when I'm hearing this, uh, these strange creatures and giants, uh, you know, marching against, uh, Israel, it, it all sounds very Tolkien-esque, uh, where the, uh, the orcs, these, these mythical creatures, which, you know, they are, for all intents and purposes, giants, and they're sort of half human, half beast, and they seem to be, uh, you know, conjured up from, uh, from the earth and forged in the bowels of the earth. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you you read Tolkien, or but I'm guessing he, that must have been his inspiration. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, the whole Tolkien story of the Lord of the Rings, and the, the rings are the ring lords of the Anunnaki uh, that were awarded kingship at Nippur. Uh, it, it is a, a mix of Sumerian antediluvian mythology with the Norse mythology, and that's where you get that fairy aspect being overlaid onto this older ideology. That is absolutely a pre-flood story, and even at the end, you have all of these beings sailing away on a ship, because now it's the age of man, uh, and that is representing the flood. And so these beings that are, are orcs, they're either ogres or they're some sort of Nephilim being that he's drawing on. And, you know, whether it's Tolkien or it's Lewis, I mean, their knowledge of the occult and the occult history is absolutely astonishing. Do you see other parallels between now and the days of Noah in the terms of, in terms of, uh, well, uh, let's talk about artificial intelligence, for example. Yeah, and I'm going to connect that now back to as in the days of Noah. So we talked about that knowledge earlier on in the show of how the seven sciences uh, mix with the, um, the the knowledge and the illicit knowledge from heaven from the gods and the fallen angels, and that this sent the technology on a very rapid increase, just like what we're having going on today. And I think that their technology was actually greater than what we have today is because, and I, I think that because we're not in the end time right now. And so our knowledge is still developing. And I think we're getting assistance on that development today just as it was in the days of Noah. And I think AI is part of that illicit knowledge that's being ramped up to help bring in the end time. And you've got quantum computing, which is on the, um, you know, out there hot and heavy these days. And they're trying to marry up AI and quantum computing, and quantum computing is used to get into different dimensions, possibly where the abyss is, and possibly to uh, get um, 
uh, Azazel and all of his uh, compatriots out of out of the abyss before the end time, and some people speculate that's what they're doing at CERN. And so, yeah, I think all of this is coming together, and it's also going to be part of the mark of the beast. Uh, so that when you take that mark, it's going to be somehow changes the DNA and or aspect of the body, uh, both physically and spiritually, in a way that those who take it are going to be sentenced to the lake of fire, just as the original Nephilim and the uh, fallen rebellious angels are going to the lake of fire. So I think when we, when I say that is part of the AI, we know you need to buy and sell and it's going to be able to control everything and watch everybody on the earth and you're going to have also this image of the Antichrist. And I think that's where that AI sort of comes in on all of that aspect. So it's still developing, but I think that is all part of the end time beast system. I had uh, Pastor Mark Biltz on the program a couple of weeks ago, and he suggested that it's quite possible that the Antichrist himself will be a cyborg. Um, it's certainly possible, um, but he's also going to be at least human. I mean, but cyborg is part human. We do know he's going to receive a, uh, a mortal head wound, and we do know he's the one who once was, now is not, but will be again. And comes up out of the abyss. And so it's like Azazel who comes up out of the abyss, and I link him to Abaddon and Apollyon. And he's also called the son of perdition. And so I think what's going on here is, is that Azazel is going to enter into um, Antichrist uh, in the end time after the fatal head wound, creating the false resurrection on his um, rise to becoming Antichrist and being crowned in the temple. And Antichrist um, is also called the son of perdition. And perdition goes back to a set of Greek words that includes Apollyon. And so that's a connection there that I think is is telling us that he's going to be working with Apollyon and Abaddon. And Abaddon also means destroyer as Apollyon. And Abad is is the word that is used in Jeremiah 51 as the destroyer. Uh, and Antichrist in that prophecy is going to destroy Babylon, just as Antichrist destroys Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18 with the help of the ten kings of the end-time empire. What's really interesting about all of that is, is that Antichrist in Daniel will honor the good of forces, and that goes back to the Hebrew word amaz, and maus is rooted in a series of words that are az, 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 and like azaz and ez, which starts to lead you back into a goat um, definition, um, and all meaning for forces, fortresses, powerful warriors, things like that. And you also have Azazel coming out of Hebrew in Leviticus 16 for the word scapegoat and also rooted in the same set of words. And, of course, you put the E-L suffix on Azaz um, and you get arrived with an angelic name as in Azazel. And Abaddon and Apollyon aren't names of, of, of angels. They're just words describing destroyer. And Azazel was the destroyer of the antediluvian world. So I think you've got all of that AI stuff going on. I think you've got all of the technology, but you've still got the bloodlines um, that are going to be involved. And you've got this avatar thing uh, going on with uh, Azazel and um, and Antichrist, which brings him to the crest and pinnacle of power. Gary, I can't believe the, the two hours have flown by so quickly. I've enjoyed this immensely. Thank you so much. 
Well, thank you for having me. I know we covered uh, a lot of areas, so hopefully uh, the information made sense, and uh, thank you for having me. The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, Gary Wayne. Thank you. All right, my thanks to Duncan Briggs, Ryan White, back next week with a brand new program. Until then, move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. <laughs>